This is Geek Gab with your hosts, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Monday, November 20th, 2023. Man, I'm, I'm not going to say the year has gone by in a flash, but it is almost over. And, and, how did that happen? I I was about to try and say something like, boy, am I looking forward to 2024? And I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I could not shove that lie out past my teeth. Uh, and I'll tell you why. This is like literally right in the forefront of my brain because I discovered this. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you this exactly. Uh, I discovered something good, and I discovered something, well, I, I think it's bad. I think it's terrible. Uh, January 26th on Apple TV+, Plus, the sequel to like Band of Brothers in the Pacific called Masters of the Air uh, going on uh, Apple TV+. Plus. So... It's, it's about B-29 bomber pilots uh, who flew all those daytime raids over Germany uh, to, you know, flatten cities and stuff. So, and I've been hearing, hearing about this for the last, like, three, four weeks. Um, they had worked with HBO on the previous two miniseries, but Band of... Uh, but, uh, the Pacific was so expensive and was such a financial bomb for HBO that HBO declined to be their partners on making this and Apple stepped up. So January 26th of 2024, uh, this is coming out and I'm genuinely looking forward to it. So that's something good coming up in 2024. And then three hours ago, three hours and 20, three hours and 17 minutes ago, I, uh, I discovered that in 2024, they're, they're releasing Beverly Hills Cops Axel Foley. <laughs> You can't be serious. I, I am. They're they're making a fourth one. I don't know if you've watched Beverly Hills Cop. Have you seen any of them? Of course, I watched the first one many times. Yeah, the first one, absolute classic. The second one is, you know, it, it's a sequel basically made to cash in on the first one, but it's still a really good movie. And the third one is like getting punched repeatedly in, you know, really sensitive places. It's not good. It's bad. It's one of those sequels that I own on my iTunes media library that I hide so that I can't even see it so that it won't. I, I can't even play it. I'd have to like, you know, go into my account and hit like show all movies. And there's a few movies that I just hide so that I can pretend like I don't own them. 
<laughs> uh, and Beverly Hills Cop 3 is one of them. Also, uh, uh, oh, I can't even remember the third one, but it, it it's the uh, it's another buddy cop series. They made three of them with uh, Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. Rush um, Hour. Rush Hour, yeah. Rush Hour 1, 2, and 3, same deal. Third one, so awful, I hide it from my iTunes. So they're making a fourth, not Rush Hour, which, which would have been bad enough news because the Rush Hour movies were never as good as Beverly Hills Cop anyway, right? Right. They're fun. They're good. But they're not Beverly Hills Cop good. And... And they're making a fourth Beverly Hills Cop movie. So it's right at the forefront of my mind. So I just found out three hours ago. And like, I wrote this scathing tweet. And I'm really trying hard to be super positive on Twitter. And kind of on the show, too. So I wrote this scathing tweet. And then I deleted it. My scathing tweet was, you know, this makes me want to take up smoking dot 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 steel belted radios filled with toxic waste <laughs> um it just which will tell you exactly how much confidence i have that this is going to be a good movie and it stars his daughter, who's a criminal defense attorney. So what I fear is that like many movies that we're going to see over the next 18 to 24 months, is that pre-Panderverse Hollywood is suddenly going to be caught out by a post-Panderverse audience. Um, now, I don't know if you've seen that. Have you seen Into the Panderverse, the South Park comedy special? I have not. I, have can, I can picture exactly what it's about. Have you heard about it? Yeah. Okay. You ought to see it. I've seen it. Uh, in fact, I think I did a quick pocket review of it on one of our last couple of shows. It's South Park, well worth watching. Um, savages, um, exactly this kind of thing. And I'm just afraid this is going to be one of those movies where Axifoli is there just to set up a reboot where they hand over the reins to his daughter to try and, you know, basically like the last two Saw movies, which were awful, which I've seen, which aren't, <laughs> which aren't worth watching. I mean, they're, they're awful. Um, I caught you know, up on the Saw franchise as well. Oh, not Saw. I don't mean Saw. I mean Scream. Scream. The last two Scream movies, which are awful. And they're all about like leaving the classic screencast behind Scream 5 and 6 and like soft rebooting it with uh, Jenna Ortega and her sister, uh, yeah. primarily her sister, not Jenna Ortega. 
and like the old cast is there just to be there to you know set up the new cast um so yeah i'm afraid that that's what this new movie is going to be well that's it's a- almost almost certainly right because uh eddie murphy's getting up there in years and of course they're going to introduce his children and there's uh as judge reinhold still around i mean come on i don't know I haven't read any articles about it. I just saw one picture. I will tell you the unearthly thing about it. And I don't think this is medicine. Eddie Murphy looks like he just stepped out of the 80s. Like in the picture I've got. And it's an onset production picture. It's not a still from the movie. Like it's just a, a a photograph on the set. You can see all these audience, all all these like bystanders taking photos of it. Um, he looks like he just stepped out of the eighties. He's he doesn't look old. It's it's. I mean, it's kind of awesome. You're like, good for you, man. One of those dudes who just doesn't age, huh? Doesn't age. Yeah, almost like Tom Cruise. Whatever Tom Cruise has, Bill Murphy also. Uh, Eddie Murphy, sorry, also has. Oh, you mean Scientology? Um, is that is that the secret Scientology means you don't age? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's what Tom Cruise got. Um, <laughs> the Scientology episode of South Park also funny. Um, uh, Bradford Walker in the chat calling this out as a tax write off excuse, almost certainly. Well, I really hope they. You know, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't I know mean, if they're look, even going to release it. Look, look you, you have to uh, you have to understand something about Hollywood, which I think you do. But I spoke to someone who worked um, in the industry. I've uh, spoken to a couple of people, but one in particular told me the whole – and I'm not going to do it justice. But the in, the way a movie is funded, all the, the, the companies, the studios, and the, the producers, they set up uh, contracts – uh, and shell companies, and some companies own the uh, revenues, and some companies own the debts. And they basically structure it so that when it comes time to pay taxes, the movies are always a failure. Like they 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 do all sorts of um, gymnastics with the tax laws, and you know the who owns what and and who accounts for all the losses and who accounts for all the revenues. Basically movies are never taxed as, as far as uh, you know, the government goes. So you can bet your bottom dollar. This is a tax write off for somebody. Yeah. Each movie itself is its own separate corporation. Yep. So that corporation is owned by the studio. And it has to pay the studio fees for everything the studio does for it, for distribution, for running equipment, for photocopiers, for whatever. And then it pays the production company. And then it pays, you know, actors. And then it pays whatever. And all of the debts go to this company 
and everything that could conceivably be a penny of profit, go to the studio to rent equipment and everything else from the studio. And then the studio, like they don't own their own cameras a lot of the time, right? They rent cameras from other companies whose job it is to rent out cameras. So there are layers and layers and layers of, of charges. Like a production company will charge the movie $2,500 per page to make copies of the script. So if you've been to Kinko's and Kinko's charges you five cents a page to make copies of something, to print out a character sheet or whatever. Production companies in Hollywood charge $2,500 a page to print out copies of a script. That's absurd. So you can see how the scam is set up. So the movie just gets uh, the corporation that is the movie that's running the production of the movie gets hit for all of these fees. And, and it doesn't matter how big a movie is, how long it's been running, how much profit it makes. The accounting is set up such that it never has come in on a net profit basis. So, and because all these studios are based in California, California, under California law, that's legal. They could easily change the law, so it's not. But, but it's who Cali wants that? Yeah, but it's California law, and, and then that's legal. And other companies and other industries do the same thing, but uh, it's a little bit harder to do. Um. So, yeah, it's, I, I just, so it's not so much that this movie is a tax write-off, it's that this movie itself, if it does make any money, all that money is going to the studio, it's not, the movie itself isn't going to make money. What, what is, what's been happening recently as far as tax write-offs go, somebody in 1991 for, I think it was the New Yorker wrote a funny article called Lawsuit of uh, Wiley Coyote versus the Acme Company. And it was just this little article about, you know, how Wiley Coyote is suing the Acme Company because of the defective products it keeps sending him and he just keeps on getting injured. So they took that article as the basis for a mixed live-action animated movie, kind of like Roger Rabbit. And they made this movie. They shot it. They did all the special effects. They finished it, and it was ready to release. And then, like, two weeks ago, uh, Zaslav, who is the studio head at Warner Brothers, just stuck it in the Warner Brothers vault and took a $30 million tax write-off. Because, <laughs> because they're never going to release it, 
because they're never going to see a penny of profit from it, he can write off the entire production expenses of the movie uh, and claim it was all a loss. It's 100% loss. And right, uh, and so that goes against the studio profits and reduces the taxable income of the studio. Um, and they also do this to the Batgirl movie. Same guy, same studio a year ago, the Batgirl movie. Um, and people are claiming now, crewmen are giving interviews now that said, oh, no, it was a great movie. I don't believe it. I have a hard time believing that this was a good movie or a great movie because of casting choices and things like that. I think this is going to be a disaster. I think this is going to be a stinker on par with Flash and the Marvels, both of which have opened up badly. And so, which we talked about last week, I think. Um, and so he just decided not to release it. And I think that made him... Uh, just think this is a brilliant idea. If he's at all worried that a movie might not be genius, he can just not release it and claim it as a tax write-off, which is actually phenomenally stupid because here's the thing. When you write something off as a tax write-off, it's not like getting $30 million from the government. It's like getting $10 million from the government for a $30 million tax write-off. Because the corporate tax rate is about a third. It's actually 30%. We'll, we'll call it 33 because it's easy to do the math, especially for $30 million. Your income is taxed at 33%. So if you make $100 million in profit, you pay the government $33 million, right? Sure. So if you take a $30 million tax write-off, the government says, oh, you only made $70 million, so you only have to pay a third of that. So you've only gotten $10 million of benefit from it. You've lost $20 million. And that's assuming that the money only that the movie only costs thirty million dollars to make, um, which is a good assumption because that's what the tax write-off is. We're assuming that that's how much the movie costs. But I can't imagine that a computer animated slash live action mixed movie starring John Cena and some other people only costs thirty million. That's a really low budget nowadays. So. It's not a smart financial move, uh, especially since everybody involved with the movie has said it's actually a really good movie. It was testing through the roof with the audiences, whereas Batgirl wasn't. Batgirl was testing disastrously uh, with audiences. So they could have released this, done some tighter editing, tweaked it, released it, paid for the publicity campaign and actually made money on it. 
Instead, they only got $10 million of benefit hmm. because a $30 million tax write-off is not worth $30 million. It's only cash. It's cash value is actually $10 million. One has to wonder what the real reason was. Um, I think David Zaslov is not. I, I think he's incompetent. A lot of incompetent people get into positions of power, and I think that he is one of them. I think that Warner Brothers has had a lot of high-profile disasters in that it's much better in Hollywood to not be the shepherd of a disaster. It, it, as far as your career goes, your job is always safer saying no to a movie. Nobody ever lost their job in Hollywood telling a movie, no, we're not going to release you, or we're not going to make you, or we're not going to read your script. People lose their jobs all the time for telling people, yes, we'll read your script. Yes, we'll option your book. Yes, we'll put your movie into development. Yes, we'll you know, start production. People lose their jobs all the time for things like that. Nobody ever lost their job for saying no. Um, so that explains everything about Hollywood. People want to keep their jobs. They want to keep the money from the jobs. They want to keep the perks of their jobs. And they want to keep the power. Because you're, if you're a Hollywood executive, you are one of the most powerful people in the world. Literally hundreds of thousands or millions of people have the core dreams of their lives. Dreams that are the core of their very identity based around wanting to do things and the only that the only way they can get to do those things is by getting you to say yes yes you'll cast them in this movie yes you'll put them on the crew yes you'll hire their fledgling you know makeup effects studio yes you'll give them a job in the mailroom so they can start working their way up Yes, you'll option their their script or their book series. Um, they want to work in movies. They they want to be famous. They they want to see their name in lights. They want their mom to see them on the movie screen. I mean, these are dreams that people obsess over, and and base their entire lives and their efforts for literally decades of their lives. Sometimes since they were children. Um, and you have that power to say yes or say no, and you want to keep your job because you want to keep that power. And the way you keep that power is by telling people no, because, uh, unless you're particularly intelligent, ruthless, and have some kind of natural immunity to being fired, um, you... You keep your job by saying no, not by saying yes. Makes sense. So don't watch, what were we talking about? Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be any good, if it's going to be. It might surprise you. It might shock me. I might turn out to be completely wrong. And it, it's a delightful movie that's really about Axel Foley and... 
uh, Eddie Murphy did it because he thought that this was the right script and this was the right time. And he was going to get out there and, and make a great movie. It, it might not be another, you know, another grim cash grab where they're trying to sideline the old star with a new cast. It might not. It's just that in the last decade of Hollywood, that's, I, I, that's yeah. been the trend almost all that's the time. That's what they do. So, okay, Bob's upset in the chat. <laughs> and that's all I wanted to, I mean, that's everything. We could talk about that. Oh, so, that's all, folks. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of stuff that we could talk about. I've got a few things going on, um, a few little things, but we could catch up with them at the at the end of the show. Uh, so you've been missing out on Trollopulous, Daddy Warpig. Did you hear about this battle, Bronstein? I have caught the edges of it. Apparently there are three battles going the, that are going to happen going forward. Um, and I caught Mr. Wargaming's thread about his concerns with AD&D, uh, some of the things about it working or not working as a war game vis-a-vis uh, -vis morale checks and recovering from morale checks, which is something I know the battle system, which was D&D's boxed set for combat rules covered, um, but which uh, isn't covered in the DMG for AD&D. Um, but other than that, no. So, uh, Jeffro Johnson finally got his Ugrecht Who Caresville Bronstein battle that he wanted. Um, he's been wanting to do a mass combat to tie up all the loose ends in his new unhinged uh, game. And he's been working on this idea of the Bronstein as uh, a way to play D&D &D at a high level or at a different tier, depending on which way you want to look at it. So he did, uh, I think it's pretty crazy, pretty audacious thing. Um, and you may read between those lines as much as you like. He basically said, okay, we're going to do this. Uh, here's the territory. And he mapped out in little one-mile hexes. Here's the territory. Here's what we're going to do. And he said, okay, everybody who wants to play, show up. And we bugged him. We bugged him for like a week straight. He would not tell us what he was doing. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, anybody who asked, hey, how are we doing this? What should I do? He says, I don't know. We're just going to show up and play. Um, skip to the end. It actually worked. Here's what we did. And uh, you can follow along with what happened on his uh, blog, jeffro.wordpress.com. And I'll throw that up here on the screen uh, for anybody who is uh, watching on YouTube. He got a bunch of people together. I think there were eight of us. And he had his three main factions on the map, plus a few other factions. And 
each faction, he gave them a rundown of however many troops they had and where they would be on the map uh, and everything. And that was it. This wasn't a structured rule set like um, Decembork. There wasn't even a land grab quite the same as Brovenloft. Uh, he knew some of the factions. He knew where they are. And so he just had everybody in a room chatting about what they were going to do. And he ran it like a game of diplomacy or like a game of Bronstein. Um, we set up a separate Discord channel for the DM. We'd all hang out in one channel uh, talking away. And one by one, he'd pull each player aside and ask them about their faction, what they plan to do, orders they have, or something like that. And let me tell you, it was a little slow at first uh, as people were sort of start, starting to talk and figure out like what their factions are, what their goals are. Uh, some factions had um, goals or objectives that were pretty clear. Um, who cares? Phil and Steddington are, are uh, basically at war uh, because Steading is pushing everyone around and asking for tribute. Steddington's run by a bunch of monsters. He's got hill giants. He's got trolls and orcs and things. Um, and who cares, Ville, sort of your standard human town. You know, run by a wizard, played by the inimitable Macho Mandalf. Uh, so he took all our orders together, and all of a sudden, uh, those of us in the main channel see different people two at a time they're going into separate channels and uh, another player you know a couple players end up in the dm channel with jeffro for a long long time um it got wild and after about uh, an hour and a half oh goodness no after about two hours three hours of playing um jeffro DM came back into the main room and said, okay, guys, there's a bunch of stuff that happened over the past couple of weeks in game, and we're going to resolve everything that we can. And so what we did in front of uh, everybody is we resolved a large fight. It turns out several of the armies went and had a uh, a meeting where several alliances were set up and they decided to have a keg party. This is the uh, dumbest Broasar stuff uh, ever. Uh, but it's great. Uh, everybody was having fun. Everybody's trying to figure out, you know, who's going to betray whom, what's going to happen. And yeah, it turns out, uh, you know, the humans betrayed the... Uh, the monsters and it was hill giants and orcs versus uh the let's see the soldiers from doucheland with collars popped and pikes at the ready uh who charged in and billy the fighter rode in on the blue dragons captured by uh the leader of who caresville and that is a reference to the previous sessions in, in the campaign. Uh, now, if, and if you haven't been listening or following along, this doesn't make any sense for you. I'm going to try to tie it all together in just a minute. Bear with me. So they had a big battle royale at the kegger. And 
it turns out the uh, you know the humans became victorious. And so why is that interesting? Why is that significant? What's going on here? What are you even talking about? So there's a couple things. This game was a culmination or brought it was brought out of all the previous gameplay that occurred uh, in the past 10 months. Uh, this is a setting that Jeffro introduced at the beginning of the year. Um, we played as player characters in it for uh, a few months, and we sort of developed some of these factions, or they were sort they were developed as part of the gameplay. You've got a faction of elves. You've got a faction of, uh, you know, thieves. There's uh, the wizards faction in Who Caresville. And of course, Steddington was ruled by monsters. And when we stopped playing in that game, we took a break from that uh, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Jeffro said, we we should wrap this up, right? Because everybody's kind of mad at Steddington. You know, all these all the humans should get together and, you know, combine forces and try to take down Steddington, right? Because they're sick of monsters. Uh, causing trouble and taking slaves and everything like that. So it was interesting because it was a natural outcome of the regular Dungeons and Dragons game that we had been playing and using the construct of a Brownstein or game of diplomacy seamlessly switched from that low-level dungeon-crawling uh, style of game to a wider open um, more of a mass combat or war game sort of game where you're marching armies around the map and making deals with other factions and that sort of thing and it was half of the players were the same players who were uh, actually in the regular game too so it's not like we were playing our regular characters we took on the role of these faction leaders um, that's interesting. Now, you could say you could just play a game of diplomacy instead. You could just play a game of Bronstein instead, right? Uh, but the layout, at, you know, this is sort of the same point from a different angle. The layout of the game was decided by the actual game itself. Uh, and using, uh, we, do, we didn't need any different game mechanics we didn't need a different way to resolve battles or or anything like that dungeons and dragons does the mass combat for us even if you're moving armies around the map um uh, why why else was this significant because there was very little uh prep involved uh even though it drove me nuts i was i was completely beside myself stressed out because uh, Jeffro had said nothing about sort of what the mechanics might be, what we're expected to do. Uh, and I, I wish he had just said, uh, just said outright, don't worry about it, just show up. And apparently he had said something like that to some other people too, but it's just there was almost no prep involved other than him setting up the map, um, which if you're watching on YouTube, you, I, I showed that earlier, right? 
as long as you, as long as the game master understands the campaign world and the factions and the forces at play, you can switch seamlessly from one type of play to the other. I think reading between the lines through the ADD Dungeon Master's Guide, I think that is something that Gygax and, and the other original players of the game who made the game, that's a little closer to the way that they played or a little closer to what their gaming sessions might look from week to week. Um, I've no evidence to back that up. Of course, it just seems like when you read when you read the book and and uh, there's so much talk about switching to overland travel and, and marching armies and this and that. Uh, but the big difference, of course, was the effect of the patrons. Now I'm going to tell you, do you have any questions about the the setup or the mechanics or anything? No. Because I want to switch to the to telling a little bit more of the story really quick. Uh, from my perspective, uh, I took on the role of the elves of Loth Rivengrove. And so right away, I messaged B-dubs so that I could form an alliance with Chaz and figure out how we could cause trouble for uh, everybody else and uh, come out ahead. And we had a great plan because uh, he was able to do scouting for my forces and I could move my forces around the map at, at pretty rapid pace to where he directed. And we decided that we would take on a close target, uh, which would be uh, Fighter Billy and his Palisade. Uh, well, you see, Billy's been chopping down a lot of trees right on the edge of our forest. And he's also the leader of a human supremacist movement who've been all sorts of trouble uh, causing anti-elf sentiment in the rest of the human lands. Well, needless to say, uh, someone, ought to, someone ought to cut Billy down to size. So here's where, here's where the actual game fell apart. Here's where the no prep nature of it, the, the seat of my pants playing fell apart. Um, whereas my armies were moving around the map looking for an opportunity uh, to either uh, get one over on Steddington or uh, get some get at Billy's palisade where we could stop the human supremacists from being a thorn in our side. Um, the game, or it turns out that Billy never actually moved his units anywhere. He had a whole army and they just stayed in the palisade. Why is that? First of all, no clear objectives. Uh, Billy had no need of his army. Uh, he just sort of flew two blue dragons out to uh, the kegger and caused a lot of ruckus. Um, Billy had no clear objective other than to be one of the armies going up against Steddington. Um, the forces were numerically un imbalanced. Not necessarily a big deal, but if you check out the blog, uh, Loth Rivengrove had a few powerful characters, but not a lot of troops. 30 archers and 30 light cavalry. So 
the elves are really good at protecting the forest, but really bad at sieging and taking down a fort. Um, you know, my army was effectively a butter knife compared to everybody else's armies. And that's fine. It put me in a spot where, uh, and I could have been more active. A better player would have done a lot more in the situation. But as far as moving my armies around and, and sort of accomplishing my object objective, um, Chaz's scouts gave me all the information I needed, which was your army's not tough enough to take on anybody. So I ended up uh, playing a more passive role uh, in the game than I would have liked. And um, a, a, a more, more specific goals for factions might have helped in that situation. Um, putting the armies uh, in parity might have helped. Um, and just plain having more turns. Uh, people spent most of the time doing the diplomacy, the the chatting with each other and setting up deals, which was really satisfying to watch. But uh, for me, more actual game turns to move pieces around on the board and do scouting actions and things like that, I think that would have been a little more satisfying from my perspective. Um, and those are just minor, minor quibbles, really, because as far as Jeff was concerned, uh, mission accomplished. Uh, everybody seemed to have a really good time. Let's go back to the story of what actually happened, because the finish, you will not believe the finish uh, if you haven't read it on, on the blog. So at the end of the night, Jeffrey got everybody together. He says, OK, we're going to resolve this big, stupid kegger. And then afterwards, there's a little icing on the cake. Uh, so we had a great time enjoying the, the battle between the douches and the orcs and the uh, hill giants and the blue dragons. Uh, and after the battle, everybody's sort of, you know, relaxing or cheering or whatever. And um, Macho Mandalf, who's playing uh, Elderbrecht, the leader of Who Caresville, pipes up and says, so what's the icing on the cake? And one player who had been, who had actually not said all, much of anything all night, who was playing the Burkleberg thief faction. He says, okay. And he, he rolls a dice in the dice channel. And, uh, and the dice comes up a zero one. And everybody's like, what's, what's, what's going on, Jeffro? What is that? And he says, that was an assassination attempt on Elder Brecht of Who Caresville. And everybody just blew up. It was the perfect way to end it. This, this, uh, this main event, the, the big battle with the dragons and the giants and the, the popped collars and everything. Oh, it was, it, was, it was the centerpiece battle of the whole thing. And that whole... That whole negotiation that set up the battle between the Doucheville faction, Steddington, and the Orc faction, and uh, who caresville. That whole thing sort of sucked up all the time and energy out of the room. And at the very end, it turns out that it, it was all just a distraction to give an assassin enough time to get into who caresville and assassinate its leader. 
absolutely hilarious. And the only sort of, that's the thing that can only happen when you just put eight guys in a room, give them a character and say, okay, go at it. It's the only thing, RPGs are the only type of game that can give you that experience. And it's, and this type of Brownstein style game is the only way you get crazy action just like that. No DM is going to make that up. Absolutely so, fantastic. So is a zero one on the assassination chart. That is a successful ass assassination. Yeah, I should make I should make that clear. I should make that clear. It was all a distraction. Boom. Mandelf's uh or sorry, not Mandelf, uh Elderbrecht. Elderbrecht is eliminated. And uh so Billy and the Dragons return home and find that there's no more leader in Who Caresville. And that was that guy. I didn't like him anyway. <laughs> yeah, and, and many of us who are PCs feel the same. We were like, ah, uh, can they all lose? Uh, I'd like <laughs> I'd like everybody to lose. Um everybody played played really, really well and was a great sport about everything. Uh man, man. And the lessons we learned, of course, you should check out Jeffro's uh, blog post about it. Um, he's he's put a lot more thought into this. He uh, there's lessons learned here, really good stuff. Um, I had fun. I'm glad I joined up. I'm glad he did it. I never want to see who caresville again, and I don't care about anything that happened there. But it was a lot of fun to play. All right. Yeah, I honestly. I was I was waiting to hear stories of like a massive forest fire sweeping the area, and, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's um. We did a little bit of Twitter trolling throughout the event, uh, but it was just a it was a one night thing. I think we played for six hours. I think it was a six hour event. And honestly, the first hour, hour and a half, where people were just sort of getting familiar with their uh, factions, so it wasn't it wasn't that much noise. So, so, but there's something else coming up after Thanksgiving. But what now? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Jeffro is uh, probably gonna do it again, and you know, continue the continue the struggle and wrap up some things and maybe see where it goes from there. Uh, we'll see. We'll see if that happens. We'll see what happens to it. Uh, that reminds me of another thing that we learned. Uh, we, uh, we've seen a, a few games attempt a Brovenloft style kickstart to the campaign where you have a big, massive faction battle just to sort of set up the game. Infamously, there's the guy a few months ago who tried to do that with Oriental Adventures, and he got 50 patrons and burned out immediately because he was not prepared for any of that. And uh, uh, this was, a, I think, a great demonstration. This was a great demonstration of that process 
not only was it on a smaller scale, the entire event fit within a single 30-mile uh, map hex. It was done with eight people, and the Dungeon Master had very little preparation. Uh, so a little bit of prep, a little bit of forethought, and you can start, this can be your session zero or your session one. Uh, instead of having little characters uh, in a town next to a dungeon, you can always open up your game with a Brownstein like this. Set up the major factions in the area, then you can zoom in and play your level one adventurers wherever you like. Um, I'd love to see it happen. I'd love to do it myself. Uh, I may do that. I may wait till after the holidays when I have time. Uh, because it looks absolutely fascinating. Um, I think, and and uh, I attended it, I did it, you've seen the receipts, you've heard me here, you've read the blog post, uh, Broasar blogs receipts. Uh, there's nothing left to do but to try it out. I stunned him. Ladies and gentlemen, I've stunned him. Or put everybody to sleep, one of the two. No, I, I'm i actually thinking of... Uh, um, my different philosophies on starting areas um, and the experience of starting in Who Caresville back in January... Um, I don't really have any comments to make, but yeah, because we, we've talked about that before. Yeah. We don't need to go over that again. Um, oh, and technically I was also thinking about something else we've been talking about for the show that we can't announce yet, so. And the fact that it's the holidays and things like that. Want well, to wish everybody happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Yes. Um. So I went out and on a crazy whim, there was uh, I've got a theater close to us and uh, Close around here means half an hour drive. Um, and this theater has had for a long time for would-be blockbuster movies. They have these collector's cups for their largest size drinks. And they're Big plastic cups with pictures, you know, silk screened on them or whatever. Um, and I buy them because my nephews like them. And so I got a little collection of these. Um, and COVID came along, and like a lot of things, the theater had to shut down. And then after COVID came along, 
and the theater reopened, movie studios didn't start doing these again. It's been a while since I have seen these kinds of cups be made available. So I went into the movie theater yesterday to watch a would-be blockbuster movie that just came out starring a you know female actress that has really riled up audiences that has gotten a lot of people who really dislike her and there were actually cups for two would-be blockbuster movies out both of which have opened kind of softly one worse than the other and so um i went and watched one of these movies uh so I could review it for the show. And one of these movies was The Marvels, and that is not the one I watched. The other movie was The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is a terrible title. Good <laughs> night. I mean, that's almost an essay. What the hell? Um, and it stars Rachel Zellger. I want to keep saying Zellweger, but that's Zegler. Wait, Rachel Zegler. Um, who is genuinely a talented person, but does not have the career behind her to be as arrogant as she is. She's been in three movies that have hit theaters. Uh, all of which are flops. She was in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. The remake of West Side Story, which flopped. Shazam! Fury of the Gods, which flopped. The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which despite doing much better then the Marvels is on its it is underperforming in its opening weekend. It's got like 98 million. It's uh, I think twice as much as the Marvels, um, but it's still way underperforming for what they considered a Hunger Games movie to be. She is in the new Snow White movie, which has been a whole saga in and of itself. She is openly political very arrogant about that i mean she's genuinely talented um i haven't seen west side story the steven spielberg production because i haven't seen the original west side story and i wasn't going to watch the inferior copy unless i'd seen the good original first i own the good original on itunes i just haven't watched it and that's not unusual. I own lots of movies I haven't watched yet because I got them for cheap on sale. Um, I have a lot of things I own that I haven't been able to read or watch or listen to because my time is filled to the brim and it's really obnoxious. My life is full of things that I want to experience and enjoy, but I haven't been able to because... I haven't had enough time. Um, and yet I spend it 
spent it watching this this songbirds and snakebirds and and Hunger Games. So here's the problem with the Hunger Games. Did, did have you seen any of the Hunger Games movies? Oh sure, I saw the uh, original. I think I watched the first two. Okay, with, uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Right, Jennifer Lawrence began her career making really good small-time indie movies. Uh, one of them is called Winterbone, which is a phenomenal indie movie. It's really dark. It's about uh, uh, it's about this criminal uh, crime family in backwoods Kentucky. It, it's just a great movie. She is phenomenally talented as an actress. Um, and she, at least, by the time she became crazy, egotistical, and, and stopped being everybody's favorite ingenue, had a track record that could support it. Rachel Zegler doesn't have the track record to back up her her ego. She has the talent to back it up. She doesn't have a track record to back it up now, uh, yet. But you know who Donald Sutherland is, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, President Snow with the white hair. So what the ballad of songbirds and snakes and other birds and rainbow snakes and the Hunger Games is about, it's a prequel set 65 years uh, before the third and fourth movies. Um, oh, for Pete's sake, who cares? It's his story. It's the story of how he became a villain. So Rachel Zegler isn't even the main character in the movie, but all of the posters and like publicity focus on her. Because this is a pre-Panderverse Hollywood maneuver. And by the time Panderverse hit, the main character, Coriolanus Snow, is this tall, handsome, blonde, blue-eyed, uh, you know, arrogant guy. Love it. <laughs> and so they had to focus on her because they're trying to pander. And you have to be, you know. So I, I'm guessing that's who he was in the novel. That's who he was in the Hunger Games movies, only he's old, so he has white hair, not blonde hair. He's actually the main character. The movies are about him. He's the point of view character. You start with him as the point of view character. You end with him as the point of view character. And there is no moment in the entire movie in which he is not the point of view character. Every other character is a supporting character for him. It is all about his journey. But all of the publicity and the trailers or everything are selling this as if it is the Hunger Games again, in which Jennifer Lawrence's character, Katniss Everdeen, was the main character. 
and every other character was there to tell her story. Um, so the problem is, is he starts off as this innocent kid in the first scene of the movie, literally a kid, like four or five years old, in the middle of this war, and things are horrific, and they're starving, they're getting food from out of trash cans. They're this rich family in the middle of this war, but they're getting food from out of trash cans because there's no food to be had in the capital of Pan Am, the fictional country. And as they're getting this food, this guy comes stumbling out uh, to a dead body frozen in the streets of winter, literally iced over frozen. And they don't show this in the movie, but he starts, you hear him hacking away at this body to get food. So it's this horrific dark beginning. And it immediately makes you feel immense amounts of compassion for this guy. But, and I hope I'm not ruining the movie for you because it's a prologue of the guy who's the, or the, the, the prequel of the guy who's the main villain of the Hunger Games movies. It's kind of the Darth Vader story of how he begins as Anakin Skywalker and ends up as Darth Vader, only it's not a trilogy, it's just one movie. Okay? So he starts off as this innocent kid who you feel empathy for, and then he ends up as, I hope I didn't ruin the end of the movie for you. Because you know this going in. It's the entire premise of the movie. Okay? And it's kind of jarring. And I'm not saying all prequels are of necessity bad. I am saying that the Hero's journey is one way to do something, but the villain's journey does not make for a good movie. It's kind of depressing and nihilistic. And honestly, as much as I dislike Rachel Zegler, I literally had to spend half the movie talking myself out of remembering how much I disliked her and her obnoxious politics and her arrogance in talking about them all the time and how contemptuous of the audience and of Snow White's story and of people who wanted to see the actual Snow White story was and how just mean she is in all those interviews. I had to talk myself out of remembering that just so I could focus on watching the movie and enjoying it as a movie. This is a problem with the Panderverse movies is, is these people, the directors, the actors, you know, when oftentimes the writers are so just such terrible people that it ruins the movie for you because you're trying to sit there 
and watch the movie and enjoy the movie. And even if it's a good movie, you are so, if you've seen this, I'm not saying a general audience is, but if you've seen it, you're just so annoyed by their stupid face that uh, <laughs> you have to put that aside to watch the movie as a movie and, and see its own merits. Um, took me half the movie to finally put that aside and just watch it as a movie. Uh, again, fortunately, like I'm saying, she's a side character, so she only comes starts coming into it about, you know, 20% into the movie. And a lot of the movie, she's just not there because it's him. Um, what I'm saying is this would have been a better movie if it had been another Katniss Everdeen movie. Uh, if it had been another movie focusing on Rachel Zegler, it would have been a better story. Where she's this innocent girl from District 12, which is Katniss Everdeen's district. And she was the songbird and went to the Capitol. She's got a gorgeous voice. She really can sing. I don't know if she was actually playing the guitar, but uh, if she was really playing the guitar in the scenes in which she plays the guitar, she could really play the guitar. Um, and she can dance. I mean, I assume she can dance. Uh, well, because she was in West Side Story. Um, so she's talented. She really is talented. And she's a decent actress. Um, I saw Shazam! Fury of the Gods before I knew who she was. And... Uh, She's got a, you know, she's beautiful. She's got a strange looking beauty, but she's beautiful. And she did a good job as an actress in Shazam! Fury of the Gods. It's, it's, she has the talent to be good in Hollywood. She can sing, she can dance, she can act, she can play the guitar. Just such a personally needs to find some humility and focus on being an artist, not being a political activist, because she's she has nothing original to say. Um, and everything she has to say is, is stupid and dumb. <laughs> but sorry, it's just the truth. So let's move on to the movie. What I recommend you go see it. Uh, it's an okay movie. It's focusing on the wrong character to be a good movie because it's the villain's journey. It's not a hero's journey. So it's kind of depressing. You've got this guy, you're rooting for him. You want him to, you know, see him succeed because he's he's poor, he's struggling, he's in the capital, right? And uh, if you remember the Hunger Games, capital is the really, really wealthy center of Panem that rules the rest of the continent with an iron fist um they're babby's first tyrannical despotism um without a lot of uh detail to it um you know the bad guys and he's his family is prominent they're heroes but they're poor and they have been poor ever since the end of the war 10 years ago. And he's struggling. He's got his entire fortunes 
set on getting this prize, but he can't get this prize. It's suddenly snatched away from him. He's worked really hard, far harder than the wealthy snots around him who are arrogant and entitled and don't appreciate what they have. I mean, these are all designed to make you like him, designed to make you, you know, as a storyteller, they're there to make you cheer for him and want to see him succeed. But then all the things he begins doing are, are such horrible things. Like, you know, he's, he becomes um, mentor to uh, young kids are being sent to the Capitol for the 10th annual Hunger Games. And they've got all the stupid prequel. I don't Did you ever see Solo? No. Why would I do that? Uh, I did, so I could review it for the show. Um, but, you know, he, he comes up and the Imperial recruiter says, so who are you? Where are you from? Who are your people? And, and, and uh, you know, Han says, oh, I don't have any people. I don't have a family last name. The guy says, Han, Han Solo. So that's how he gets his name. And oh, then, then somebody else gives him, you know, a gun. And it's like, oh, here's how Han got his iconic gun. And, and oh, here's a pit. And he gets thrown in there with Chewbacca. Here's how Han met Chewbacca. Um, so there were dumb prequel moments. There are a few like that in the movie. And you're just, um, they're kind of eye-rolly because they come apart as like, they come across as just member berries moment. Like at one point they've got, I think the dad of Flickerman, who was a great character. I mean, I just loved that character in the movie. So I think it's his dad, um, who is a great character in this movie. Uh, and that could have been an eye rolling moment to have Flickerman's dad in it, but he's such a delightful little role. And the guy who plays him, play him, with such conbrio, um, such you know excitement, he's just so awesome. He's the bright spot of this movie. Rachel Zegler does a good job in her character. Um, her accent is terrible. She puts on this southern accent. It's a horrible southern accent. It's not super bad. I mean, they had a good dialogue coach. It's an okay southern accent. It's just she's not from the south. She's not from the deep south. She's from West Virginia. It should not be a southern accent. It should be an Appalachian accent. Um, but that aside, she does a good job in her role. She is a talented actress. Um, the guy playing Coriolanus Snow does a serviceable job in his role. He's not a bad actor. I, I don't think, I don't remember seeing him anything uh, but for all I know, he might have been in like three Jane Austen movies or something that I've never seen. So he could have been in a long list of other movies uh, or in, you know, The Young and the Restless or something. And I wouldn't know who he is. Um, but he gets assigned to be a mentor to uh, Rachel Zegler's character from District 12. And he has to save her from or figure out how to get her to win. And that's how he's going to get this prize so he can get the money to go to university so he can 
make something of himself and save his impoverished family who are about to be kicked out of the only home they've ever known because despite him going to this expensive school, uh, he's on like scholarship too. And despite all of his classmates being super rich, he has to take extra food from the cafeteria and hide it in a napkin and take it home to feed his sister and feed his gram because they still don't have any food 10 years after the war. It's very legitimately did a good job with this. It's legitimately understated enough to be there, but not beat you over the head with it, but still be kind of like, oh, that's terrible. That's really heartbreaking. And, and there are people who have really dealt with this in real life. That's that's not, you know, this horrible, exaggerated poverty thing that they've done. It's subtle, it's understated, it's present, and, and it makes you feel genuine empathy for the character. This is not a bad movie. It's not a terrible movie. It's not a badly done movie. It's not a movie that um, artistically is poor. It's a movie telling a story that the audience doesn't want to see told. Um, and it's not even a political movie pushing a message. It doesn't have a message to beat you over the head with. Uh, or as, you know, the drinker puts it, the message, message, message. It, it doesn't have that. So it's just not, on the whole, an exciting movie taking you on a journey you want to go on. Uh, because you're watching this person you know, kind of fall, and it's, it's kind of depressing, and that's not what the Hunger Games was about. That's not what was really selling it. Um, and, and really, the Hunger Games, at its core, was about the Hunger Games. That was the main part of the movies. You watch them, you know, it was like... Um, Oh, and I've just forgotten the name. And I, I specifically was thinking about these movies last night because I was going to mention them. The Japanese movies that everyone accused the Hunger Games of being ripoffs of um, Royale. Oh, I forgot. Now somebody in the comments is going to jump in and, and mention it because they remember them. And I, I can't remember the name right now. I'm so, so sorry. Um uh, but they were about, you know, high school kids being put on this island who had to fight till one of them remained, just like the Hunger Games. Um, but they were about, you know, the various stratagems and them being in these strange arenas and, and strategies to arrive and gifts from people and yada, yada, yada. So this movie is about how all those things were happening and, and the uh, ratings of the Hunger Games are down. And it turns out that Coriolanus Snow was the person who in this movie comes up with a lot of these uh, battle royale, sorry, the two battle royale movies, which I have watched. Um, Japanese movies along the same thing that they're about the battles they're about the fights um in this movie the hunger games themselves are only one small part of it and they're not very exciting they just it, it doesn't make for a captivating movie the most gripping 
driving part of the movie isn't featured in the movie and the most gripping story in the movie isn't being told. This is the real story going on in the background. This girl, Lucy Gray Baird, Rachel Zegler's character, has a guy who is the beau of the mayor's daughter in her town in District 12. He really, really likes her. And at one point she likes him. He's bit of a bit of a, you know, layabout, bit of a, a, a creep, but he's also part of the resistance. And the mayor's daughter is absolutely smitten for him. And because she's smitten for him, she, her dad, the mayor, arranges to have her sent to the Hunger Games. So she goes to the Hunger Games in this brilliantly handsome capital mentor has this huge personal reason to help her succeed. And despite their differences, her being a subject from the capital district and being very beautiful and talented and him being this what she thinks is a privileged child of the cruel and heartless capital, they start having feelings for each other, and he helps her win the games. And I'm giving up spoilers here. Sorry, I should have warned you. But anyway, they are torn apart. Because he helps her succeed by cheating. And she wins, but she's sent back to her district. And then all of a sudden, he gets exiled from the capital for cheating and shows up in her district, no longer a child of privilege, but I'm literal. This is the actual movie. I'm not remaking this movie to say, oh, this would have been a better story. I am literally telling you her story as it happens in the movie. He gets sent back to District 12 as a peacekeeper, as one of the faceless thugs from the Hunger Games movies. And they start trying to find a way to escape so they can be together and be in love. Now, That story is a much better story than the story that's actually told in the movie. That is a golden story. That's a story that could have grabbed audiences. That is not the story that is being told in the movie. And because that is not the story that's being told in the movie, audiences aren't showing up because they just don't give a damn. They don't care. If they had told the right story of the right character, this could have been another gripping uh, success. It could have been another gripping sensation. As much as I dislike Rachel Zegler, her character should have been the main character, and she could have pulled it off. She could have carried this movie. She could have done it. She had enough. She has enough star power to do that. Um, 
And if this had not been about Coriolanus Snow, this had not been about his, you know, not been a prequel about him, just been about uh, something being set in the early years of the Hunger Games. And so you kind of see behind these scenes about how things were in Panem back then. So you could see what the war was like and stuff. That would have been fine. So you can see you know, having two leads switching back and forth between them to compare their two lives. And you could see how both of these characters, despite supposedly being completely different, actually had a lot in common. And why they could come together and why both of them could hate their society and want to escape from it, um, that would have been an awesome story. And that would have been a story an audience could have loved. And I think would have been a, a, a big success. Not by changing anything about the movie, except by telling the story that was already there and telling the right character's story. So, you know, I guess if uh, one of the things we've commonly done on this show is uh, talk about writing advice. So writers writing advice, make sure you're telling the right character story. If there's something that a secondary character is going to, that's a better story, a more interesting story than what's happening to your main character. Tell that story instead. Amen. Amen. And, and I'm literally not changing anything other than focusing on her and the events happening to her. Well, better you than me to see it. Speaking of writer's it's, advice. It's not a painfully bad movie. I, I was not literally in pain watching this and I, and I wasn't bored. Uh, it's not a boring movie. It's just not as exciting as it could have been. Uh, speaking of writer's advice, i uh, love to switch gears and catch you up with uh, Brian Niemeyer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to say one more thing. A lot of times in modern movies and Pandaverse movies, they have characters who are uh, entirely informed characterizations they say oh this person is brilliant and they praise him to the sky and says they're say they're brilliant um rachel zegler's character the songbird genuinely displays cunning and um intelligence and when she's given uh some benefits to use during the Hunger Games, she displays wisdom in when to use what she's been given. And so you can genuinely admire her character because the writer, I don't know if it's the writer of the movie or the, the writer of the book, makes her smart, shows her being smart. So you can actually admire the character. They just don't have someone standing there praising the character endlessly telling you you know oh she's so smart she's so brilliant she's so beautiful she's so talented they show her singing nobody ever says oh she's so great they show her dancing they show her playing the guitar they show her being cunning in the arena they show her you know being kind um and that is a different enough this this could have been a good movie its failures are not due to 
what happens with Pandaverse movies. Um, it is the advertising that's pandering. It is not the movie that's pandering. So uh, the, the, the book chose to tell the wrong story. So the movie's telling the wrong story. But the movie did a good job at telling the story that it was given. Sounds fair. I'm sorry. Anyways, you were saying Brian Niemeyer. What? Yes. Well, you ruined my segue, Warpig. I don't know what to say. <laughs> oh, so you remember last week we did a preview of Brian Niemeyer's work, A Weapon, which is the yes. successor to the build of Mac. Um, I am happy to report that uh, the uh, Kickstarter... Still disappointed he didn't call it Make a Mac. Right? Um, <laughs> the... Uh, the Kickstarter or the Indiegogo is going just fine, and we've completed the worker weapon. So I'm going to show off a little bit here. Uh, if you're on YouTube, you can uh, check this out. You can find it at brianneemeyer.com. Uh, that's where you find his blog. Uh, worker weapon number three, we finalized the design that we talked about last week. And we've got uh, a ancient tooth of a, an, an old sea god that's been, you know, was captured eons ago, and it more or less curses whoever wields it as a weapon. So we've got a spear with that giant tooth at, at the end, and we've filled it up with all sorts of um, mean, evil powers, uh, such as telepathy and turning into beasts, and, you know, and also in a nice Lovecraftian effect it, it'll sprout a hook from the other end the point isn't to talk about the necessarily just to talk about how cool it is i mean i love how cool it is but in just a few days in less than a week um like we sat down and that thing that we talked about last week we turned around we made it a a, a fully fleshed out uh, part of the story uh, i had a lot of fun doing it uh, so that's done check that out at his blog um, and, uh, you know, I hope, I hope if you're interested, I hope that you're interested and go ahead and check out, uh, the burned book. That was really cool. Uh, I think I had some, some other stuff to talk about, but I'm way over time and I forget everything else. What else do you want to talk about? D-dubs? Oh, I'm done. I am all talked out for today. A good show, man. Uh, thanks for hanging out and talking with me. It's always good to do the gab. Uh, special thanks to everyone uh, hang, hung out live. Uh, everybody wanted to hear about Who Caresville and the Red Kegger. Uh, glad everybody had fun doing that. Stay tuned for more uh, good D&D discussion as well as whatever else comes up. And uh, next week is Thanksgiving. And after that, we'll, uh, we'll, see, what's, uh, we'll see what's happening after Thanksgiving. Uh, we may take a break for next Monday. We may not. Uh, looks like I've lost Daddy Warpig. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if he's uh, if he's coming back on or not. It was uh, it was a lot of fun to go over the whole uh, Brown scene with you guys. I wish I'd gone over it in more detail. I uh, just want to remind you go to. Um, jeffro.wordpress.com let's see 
All right, guys. I think we're going to call it a show. No sign of the war pig. So I'm just going to say, welcome back. Yeah, I had a sudden crash. <laughs> All right, Daddy Warpig. Uh, I tried to I tried to keep it afloat, but we're done for this week. So why don't you send us off? You did some vamping. That's impressive. All right. Folks, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not very good at it, but but we'll see. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Um, thanks for everyone who uh, came in live and uh, participated in the chat, and uh, thanks for everyone who will listen later. Um, this has been Geek Gab for Monday, November 20th, 2022. You can catch us uh, just about every Monday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific, right here on YouTube.com slash GeekGab. That's YouTube.com slash GeekGab. Go ahead and click uh, subscribe and click the bell icon so you can get a notification for when we are going live. We are also available on the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, and on SoundCloud.com so you can subscribe to us on the device of your choice or listen to us on the web, download us to your computer. We are signing up for today, folks, but don't you worry, don't you fret, we will be back.